Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby here from the Digital Shelf Institute. For many innovators in digital commerce, the dream is building a brand from scratch that grows to a scale where some larger company wants to pay a lot of money for it. Then you buy an island. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. But these days, the path to that dream is a bit more rocky and more complex. But with the right fundamentals in place, a vibrant D2C brand can still drive a lot of value. Like in Coca-Cola's $5.6 billion acquisition of Body Armor Sports Drinks in late 2021. Ryan Luenden, partner at law firm Gianuzzi Luenden, LLC, helped negotiate that deal, but also worked with Body Armor and tons of other D2C companies throughout their life cycle. Ryan joined Rob and me to lay out the necessary elements for a D2C growth path that will return maximum and lasting value. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Rob and I have been really looking forward to talking to you about your space. It's exciting. Yeah, Peter, Rob, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really pumped to be here. You know, you and your firm have been central advisors in the life cycle of some of the most compelling D2C CPG brands in the industry. It's like RX Bar, Oatly, Vitacoco. You know, and, and late last year, you represented Body Armor Sports Drink in its sale to Coke for $5.6 billion, which is the largest acquisition Coke has completed in its 130 years of, of doing business. And that's after having sold them vitamin water for $4 billion way back in the early days of D2C, you know, like 2007. So you've been around this, uh, this realm for a while. Can, can you start by giving us an outline of the kind of work that you do for your clients? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So my firm, Gianuzzi Lewenden, um, you know, we're like an inch wide and a mile deep. All we do is work with fast-growing, disruptive consumer products brands. And, you know, that's all we focus on. And we're kind of the only life cycle counsel out there in that, you know, we can work with you really early on in your sort of your life cycle. And we can take you every single step of the way through an exit for hopefully billions and billions of dollars, like a body armor, or a, um, you know, a Vita Coco or, or a um, RX bar or, or an organ. Um, so, so basically what we do, it kind of breaks down into four pillars. You know, the first is financing and M&A. Um, you know, I think in this sort of niche world, we do more of it than anybody else out there. Um, you know, we've, we sell about 20 companies a year. You know, we've averaged about two to two and a half billion in exit value, uh, you know, the past five years, except, you know, last blip because of the body armor deal, deal we were north of 10 billion in exit value. We do about 100 to 200 rounds of financing a year, and that sort of rain, that runs the gamut, right, in terms of life cycle counsel. That runs the gamut from, you know, $100 million rounds of financing, multi-hundred million dollar rounds of financing, all the way down to like, you know, a million dollar, half million dollar seed round. You know, and, and what sort of makes us unique in that representation is on the earlier side, you know, you're getting a uh, council that sort of has a great downstream view into what you're doing, right? Hey, this is what you need to do now to get your money in, to get your investors in. But these are the additional things that you need to put in place to set yourself up for success in the future, right? For the future rounds and then the exit. You know, we definitely preach like, look, your exit is the ultimate goal, right? So that's, you know, that's the war you're fighting. That's what you're getting up out of bed every day to so 
go battle, right? That's my IPO, my exit. Um, and, you know, these rounds of financing are this sort of intermittent battles that you have to fight along the way. And we're very, very much adept because we're true life cycle sort of advisors for these companies of setting you up not to, you know, win the battle, but lose the war for a number of reasons. You know, you, you get the wrong investor in, you get the wrong sort of dynamics between people, you set yourself up, you know, at, at a valuation that you can't overcome in the successive rounds. So we're really good advisors on a legal side and sort of from an experience side in terms of life cycle, how to set yourself up at the sort of your seed round, your A round, your B round, your C round for success in those, um, you know, next steps along the way towards sort of unlocking value. Um, you know, and, and on the later stage, on the later set side of things, you know, we're a great value to the company because we've got this great contextual basis for the industry, right? We know, you know, what the proclivities are. We know what sort of things are, are real issues in, in CPG and what sort of might not be as much, but might be an issue in tech, right? We know how to devise those things. And we know sort of when we're going into your company, when, when you're setting yourself up for that sale, we know the things that an acquirer is going to want and ask for. And we know how to clean that up and put that in a way that sort of is going to make your company just look like a really, really great asset for acquisition. Um, so then the second vertical is basically, you know, you raise money um, from investors to execute on your plan, and then you got to spend it to execute that plan. We help you do everything associated with spending that money, right? Everything from uh, on a contractual basis, from building out your infrastructure to building your, your human capital, to securing your uh, IP, to celebrity partnerships, to agreements with distributors, to agreements with brokers, to uh, agreements with um, uh, you know, your digital marketers, to your truck wraps, to your, to your commercial leases, everything from a contractual basis that you need to do to build your company and scale it. We help you do. But, you know, like kind of like we do with the financing, we help you do two things, right? We help you do, solve the problem right in front of you, right? How do you get that business transaction done? How do you get to yes? How do you get the agreement done? But we also know all the things to put in place in that particular sort of deal. Hey, what things do I need to do as a business owner to, to, to set this agreement up, to set this relationship up so that when a sophisticated investor comes in or when an acquirer comes in, this is a benefit to that person. They perceive it as a benefit, not a detriment. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of sort of life cycle, we're very ambidextrous, right? You find most lawyers kind of like, they're really good at thinking one way, you know, you're either kind of like a startup lawyer with, small clients and you don't have a lot of leverage and you help you need to help them get to yes a little bit or you're a big you're a big lawyer with big clients and you kind of know how to dictate right we operate life cycle so i'm every single day i'm popping in mentally and towards like hey you know what this is my you know billion dollar revenue client they've got all the heft they've got all the sort they've got all the clout these are all the things they should ask for out of this relationship because they can ask for it right this is how to tick all these things over to, hey, this is my startup client. You know, they don't have a lot of leverage. You kind of got to finesse your way to yes. You just can't dictate it. And here's the just a couple things you need to tee off to set yourself up for success. Uh, the, third, the third bucket is like really outside in-house counsel. Um, you know, we, we, we love what we do, the types of law we do, the transactional stuff. Um, we think we're the best at it. We don't like doing things we don't think we're the best at. Um, so stuff like legal things you need, like, litigation or 
um, you know, trademark filings or searches, uh, FDA, FTC compliance, um, things that are way, way more technical. We don't handle those. You know, you wouldn't want me to handle you if you're if you're getting sued. You wouldn't want me to go to court. I wouldn't know what to do. You would definitely not come out on the right side of it. But but because we work with like over 1,200 companies in the space, we've got a great network of professionals that are similarly situated as like us, right? They're they're sort of experts in their in their particular field. They're they're sort of you know narrow and deep in what they do, and we can connect you with all those people. So if somebody sends you a litigation letter. I'm not going to defend it, but I can send you to, you know, one of the litigators that I know that's probably handled that similar type of case many times over. Um, and so like an outhouse, like an outside in-house counsel, we can get your full coverage on all the sort of legal stuff that you need to grow the company. And, and then like the fourth vertical is not legal at all, but I think it's super inherent to my practice. And I call it community building. Um, you know, CPG is a small industry. Uh, there's only so many players. Uh, there's only so many service providers and retailers and, and, you know, everybody in there. Because I sort of live and breathe this industry, because I've worked with 1,200 companies, because we've worked with all those successes, because we're life cycle counsel and we get so involved in, our, in the company's growth, we've got great insight into, you know, like, who's the best target broker, right? Who's a great Amazon broker? Who's a great... PR company for my product? What types of investors are great at the size and scale that I am that would match up to me and match up with my sort of vision and alignment? Um, you know, who would be the person to talk to to figure out um, how to partner with uh, a retailer if I'm trying to go omni-channel, right, from digital? Uh, we're just a great resource into the industry and, and the people that are in there. And, and we're a great sounding board for companies as they grow for sort of the additional participants and the people that you need to put around yourself to make yourself successful. Yeah. So you, and just the scale of the firm and the number of transactions that you deal with, see a crazy amount of M&A in the CPG space. And one thing that's surprising to me a little bit about it, because I'm not that close to the M&A side of the, the equation here is that a lot of these emerging brands, and particularly the digitally native brands, there was a there was a seemed like a huge rush to buy them to bring you know quote digital experience inside my company to help with digital transformation and all this type of stuff. Five six seven years ago, on the retail side of things, you had Walmart buying Jet.com and Bonobos and Moose Jaw, and you know there's just a whole bunch a whole bunch of that going on. And not to name names, but I think people talk a lot about buyer's remorse for a bunch of these transactions. They were buying at big valuations. They were buying momentum businesses. Post-acquisition, the growth just wasn't there. That was their pre-acquisition with the lack of you know, VC dollars being burned. And so at some level, it's, it's surprising to me that there's, that there's this many transactions that you're talking about happening all the time still. So, so what's it? What's a good versus a bad transaction look like here? Why, how many of these things are actually really, really healthy post-acquisition? Is the media focusing on the maybe overpriced digitally native acquisition failures? Just, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Are they just picking the, the small minority of these transactions that maybe aren't great for the acquirer? So, so can you walk us through all that? Yeah, yeah. No, Rob, I, I, think you, I think you're touching on something that's important, but that's become even more important, right? So 
digitally native brands, disruptive brands sort of cresting from their, from their, from their upward trajectory when they get, when they get purchased is almost the norm. It's almost expected these days. It's been a situation that's been happening, you know, for decades, right? The big disruptive, fast growing brand gets purchased. It gets absorbed by, you know, the big conglomerate. It sort of peters off. It slows down. The growth doesn't, you know, the growth stops increasing as much. And, you know, eventually the sort of workforce, they all leave. And the ecosystem for CPG is that founder and that team has an exit. They go start another brand. They grow it and they sell it, right? But what's changed in the past, you know, maybe five years is that the big acquirers out there have started to realize that they're not as great at unlocking value in these brands as they thought they once were. Um, there was definitely a, I wouldn't call it hubris, but there was like a definitely like a belief that you could find a fast growing brand with terrible margins and improve it and still keep the consumer loyalty and the growth. And I think the, I think the case studies have indicated otherwise. So now what you're seeing today, right, is you're seeing less than 100% acquisition. For anybody who's listening who's got a CPG brand, right? You're, I would say it's less likely that you're going to do a hundred percent sale when you get acquired, then you're going to get a situation where the acquirer buys a majority stake, right? Maybe it's 60, maybe it's 80%, but they require you to leave some equity on the table for some period of time to, before you can sell that last piece. And they're doing it because they realize they're not as good at sort of unlocking that value as they thought. And they realize that keeping that sort of uh, founder team in and motivated for some period of time is important. But why it's important to a brand owner is that the second bite or third bite that that buyer takes is going to be post-acquisition. And it's going to usually be based on the performance of the brand post-acquisition. So today, more than ever, right, having a product or a brand or a company that can be acquired and maintain its momentum is is so much more important for the buy for the for the founders and the creators of those companies. Um, so, you know, there, there's there's a couple things you can do to start to prepare yourself for that type of acquisition, which I do think is going to become more and more the norm. You've seen it in the more recent acquisitions. You're seeing the CEO and the founder they're staying on post acquisition for longer yeah, periods. The, the, the big Kylie Jenner Cody transaction was structured that way, pretty pretty famously for that. And yep. I mean, in those situations, you can totally see it because her name and her personality and her personal brand is so much of the business that you want the equity incentives to be aligned after the cash transaction. But you, your statement is that this is not just for the celebrity brands, this is for, in general, the best practice currently to align incentives on a go-forward basis. Look, I, I, look if, you, if you've got a brand and you're a founder and you can sell 100% and walk away, you know, I'm, say, I'm not saying, I'm saying take it, right? You know, almost any scenario. But <laughs> I, think, I think the options for brand owners and brand founders are not going, it's going to be way less um, uh, probable that you're going to get the 100% acquisition. Look, the upside of that is though, you know, like you sell your company 60%, 20%, 20%. If you do a great job with it, the last 20% might be as valuable as the 60% when you sold it, right? You might make a lot more money if you do a great job with it. And, you know, 
a number of companies I've worked with have done exactly that. And, you know, the, the accumulation of wealth to the sort of the team, the selling team could be that much more, but you got to be prepared and put in a situation where you can do that. Yeah. So Ryan, let's, let's, couple- let's dig in, let's dig into that because I, I feel like what you're talking about is probably a different set of considerations to be sure that you're building something that will extend its life beyond you handing the keys over and walking away. And so to walk us through a little bit of like, what are those essential elements of focus that, that, that really should be thought about maybe in a deeper way than you normally would if you were, you know, if you were just thinking, Oh, I can sell this and and walk away. So, so I think when you're, when you're getting ready for a sale, right. I think there's a couple of things to look for in acquirers, right? The first is, does my acquirer have an alignment with my values, right? Do they have a similar, hey, if I'm a healthy um, uh, candy company, right? Am I selling to another healthy sort of conglomerate, right? Or am I selling to a company that is, is using me to enter into a new sort of value system or a new, or a new direction, right? Because Alignment, continued and immediate alignment on those values is going to be an indicator of greater success and alignment between the teams. You know, also, Rob, to kind of to your point, you know, is my acquirer, does it have a complementary channel competency to me, right? Hey, if I'm an Amazon business and I've got a great Amazon business, is my, does my acquirer also have an Amazon business? Do they, do they sell in a similar way? Do they have similar values? Do they sort of um, do they have similar types of spend, right? In terms of marketing and sales, are they supporting brands in a similar type of way, or is it completely different? Um, you know, you don't want to be the guinea pig, especially if you've got sort of a vested interest along the way. You want to find someone whose system you can come into and sort of start working and aligning your team and theirs pretty quickly. That, so that's you know, kind of an interesting point because that goes the trend. You know, six years ago, whenever the D to C on Instagram peak, peak enthusiasm point really was, was I'm going to buy this company because they have experience that my team doesn't have. So I'm bringing in their DNA, their understanding of digital, their understanding of social, and they're going to help us out. And you know, we didn't really see that happen so much. You know, it's a little tail wagging the dog, maybe wish hope. And so what yeah. you what you're saying is yeah that was that's maybe the wrong move anyway like you should be selling into a buying business whose existing marketing and sales motion is as similar as possible to the disruptive brands. Yes, 100%. How, that, how does that for a lot of disruptive brands they're disruptive because of go to market not necessarily disrupted because of product. Vitamin water is interesting because you, you, you did vitamin water back in the day, but vitamin water wasn't like a digital brand. Vitamin water sold in CVS and Walgreens and, you know, stop and shop just like everybody else did. So it's like, you know, Coca-Cola can buy them, put them on the red truck, go to town. And it, it you know, it integrates really well with Coke's existing model. Um, the, but in, you know, these days, if you're disrupting by channel, almost by definition, you're going to be selling to a company whose business practices are not as closely aligned. So like, where's the, where, uh, where on the gradient does this, does this divide, does this divide make sense to play? 
I think you're never going to find a one for one. Right. But I do find like if you're a more advanced brand, like there's the disruption you sort of take to get off the ground, right. To escape gravity, to sort of get zero to 10 million or 20 million. Right. And then there's the sort of scale motion that you enter into to get from 20 to a hundred or so. Right. And usually that's going to be just by the virtue of having to do that many sales, it's going to be a little bit more normalized. And the question is, do I have an acquirer that at least in terms of my plan, right? Because you never have a plan that stops at a hundred. You have a plan that everybody's got the plan to go to a billion, right? Do, does that, does the values and the marketing spend and the sort of resources and the attention, does it line up? Does their sort of business model line up with mine? And it's never going to be one for one because you're disruptive and you're sort of a, you're, you're, you're a leader, but you want to make sure it's not diametrically opposed because when you bring a sort of, when you bring a, a market heavy, you know, um, great brand that's sort of appealing to, you know, a certain populace and you sort of match it up with someone who wants to get into that business, right? Maybe they're sort of, maybe they have a low trade spend, you know, they, they have a, they're kind of a lower margin, lower trade spend, more volume type buyer. Those are where you see those things. Those are where you see those things really not jive and where you're seeing a lot of like re-divestitures of those brands later on, a couple of years later, or shutting them down. Um, so you want to make sure there's someone who, you know, again, yes, it's not to be one for one, but there's sort of, there's not too much dissonance in that long-term plan. You know, and then you also want to look at, you know, your human capital, your team around you, right? How do I incentivize those folks to stay with me? Um, because keeping that team, right, and making sure you can keep that team. And when you're doing the acquisition, negotiating a deal where you can keep your team in place and keep some amount of autonomy, whether it's contractual or just like understood between the two parties, is going to be so important to sort of locking those last couple bites of the apple. And um, in terms of, of an acquirer, in terms of understanding the acquirer that you would be being absorbed by and knowing whether or not, cause you know, I've talked to a lot of, uh, a lot of acquired company leaders that have stayed. And that part of the deal was you stay and you teach us how to be digital, you know, is some of those things. And I think a number of them walked in, not really understanding. And it's hard to, from the outside, like what are the true headwinds? of innovation inside the company that's looking to acquire us. Like, have you found any secrets for sort of really having that, the understanding on both sides be super clear as to what, what each one is getting into? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of your, like, let's talk from the brand owner's perspective, right? In terms of the things you want to be putting in place now, right? That, that, are going to have that, are, that I think are going to make the difference between a super successful, huge acquisition, huge multiple brand. There's a couple of things right now. It's first of all, you want to own all your trademarks, right? You want to own your brand. You want to own the name of your brand. I, I think I've, I've sold one company once that didn't have the trademark for like their consumer facing brand, right? Um, you don't need... You don't need a lot more than that, but like you don't need the name, like the flavors and all that stuff trademarked, but you need the brand trademarked and you need to own it and you need to have a good competitive mode around it. Um, 
then you need to own and you need to protect your recipes and your specifications. Um, look, you know, we're not in tech, we're not making microchips, right? Like a lot of the consumer goods, there's not a lot of science or secrets to, but you ideally want, you need to be able to show to an acquirer that look, look the exact recipe, the ex, exact specs of my product, I can say, I own this and I can give it to you. You know, if you don't have that, most of your product loses value. So how do you do that? You protect it. Most, you protect it via trade secret. You sort of protect it via NDAs. You protect it contractually with your sort of suppliers and your supply chain by one, saying that, hey, anybody that works on this product, hey, I own those recipes and the specs, but any improvements to those recipes and specs, I also own. Because everybody that starts, you know, everybody that outsources, you improve on that recipe and specs over time, right? Like you change it here and there, you get new equipment, you take it somewhere else. And what it looked like five years ago is usually pretty different. So you want inherently in there that all the changes that you make along the way belong to the company. Um, and then, you know, can you create a competitive moat in your supply chain? Can you get your suppliers to agree that they're not going to make a similar product for someone else, right? Because, you know, if, if your manufacturer changes your recipe or specs just a little bit, you, it's still your recipe and your specifications, but maybe they're coming out with a very similar type product. Um, so can I create like an offensive competitive moat saying like, hey, you can't come in and do the similar type of product I'm doing. Um, shoring up your human capital. Uh, like we said, people are going to want, um, people are going to want continuity. Acquirers are going to want continuity in that human capital. So incentivizing your, your workforce, incentivizing your team, incentivizing your key employees, you know, um, you know, Mike Rapoli from Body Armor always says success is best when shared, right? And he, you know, he incentivized every everybody in Body Armor. They all got stock options. When the company sold, it made over 200 millionaires and changed people's lives. Um, so like making sure you can incentivize those great key hires so that when you sell, they can stay on for a little bit, whether it's stay bonuses or, or ongoing options or some type of sale pool. And then, you know, like just as sort of a practice point, you know, establish a great advisor network while you're putting your company together. Um, there's so many things you're going to need to sort of tackle along the way. And most founders, when they come into you know, a company, they're, they're usually either like an operations person, a marketing person, or a salesperson, and shore up the things you're not great at, right? Find advisors who find it. Hey, if you're looking for a sale, find a founder who's done an exit before, right? Um, you know, you can always find good legal counsel if you want to shore some of those up, but you don't need to, right? You can find other founders. You can find someone who's great at operations to help you navigate your issues with operations. But if you've got that sort of you know, group around you, you're, you're less likely to make some sort of fatal mistake here or there, which is going to make you less attractive. And then, you know, in, in, especially in today's market, right, where inflation is crazy and sort of the supply chains are super constrained, you need to make preparations for your supply chain. You need to be able to tell the story of not how you can get to the exit, but you need to be able to tell a story of how you can get two years past the exit, right? Do I have contacts that can supply me with the products I need? Do I have manufacturing that can make enough of these products? Um, you know, out of stocks are a huge problem, right? Do I have, 
Do I have price protection on my ingredients? Have I established that? Have I built that out? Um, you know, when an acquirer comes to get you, they're going to want to see that you can, you can perform your plan. If they're buying you for a certain price, they're buying you at that price based on the belief that you can perform after acquisition the way you said you are going to. Yeah, and they're going to be looking at and scrutinizing that so much more these days. Yeah, I know that that the the honesty thing. I saw seeing Coca Cola sort of rationalizing their their brands and things like that, and I saw that part of the you know Coca Cola. It's sort of what you were talking about earlier. That Coca Cola has now made a similar line that kind of fills that sector. At the same time, Honesty was having supply chain issues. It sounds like getting their their product in place, and so you can see how some of those things can lead to you know, lead to a brand going away. Like I, I think, at least in my mind, in the Northeast, Honesty has been, you know, a household brand for a while now. So it was, yeah. it was interesting to see that, that news come out and the, the founder of Honesty kind of, you know, uh, sad about it, but kind of it's the right decision. Yeah. Know, for yeah. yeah. And then look, you're seeing divestitures. I mean, you're seeing Zico, got, you know, sold back to uh, Mark Rampola, the founder of Zico, right? Like you are starting to see like these big companies find out that the brands they took on were maybe best fits for them. And, you know, either like Coke shutting them down or divesting them. Um, it's a much, look, the economy being what it is, the market being what it is, um, acquirers are going to be much, much, much more cautious about what they do. I mean, if you look in the news, you're seeing more and more CEOs of companies step down because they've had bad quarters or a bad couple quarters and, um, and be replaced. And, and people in these acquirers are going to be concerned for their jobs and they're going to be less I mean, big companies aren't, are usually pretty risk averse, but they're going to be more risk averse. And so they're going to want to see when you're looking for, when you're, when you're looking for sale, right? For an acquirer. They're going to be looking more at things like profitability, pathway to profitability. That's something that if we were talking in 2014, you know, and we we're talking about, hey, what does an acquirer look for and what do you need to plan for? Profitability wouldn't really be on a conversation too much. You know, it would be, hey, grow your top line, double every year, um, you know, have a great consumer following you know, make sure that, you know, that the sales are sort of real sales and not sort of inflated sales. And, and that would kind of be it. But, you know, today's market, people want to, acquirers want to buy a fully formed asset, right? There was a, there was a time when uh, every big conglomerate had a, had a venture fund that was created to get into companies early and acquire them before they had to overpay. And now these big conglomerates are willing to overpay. They're willing to overpay for a more fully formed company with great fundamentals and great functionality, and that's already profitable or has a great sort of plan on getting profitable because, you know, they don't want to find that they buy an asset that they can't make money off of later. They, they're willing to sort of wait and pay a lot more for something that's more of a sure thing than, you know, a speculative sort of um, grown brand. And that, I think, has changed sort of the landscape over the past seven years in terms of what investors are looking for, right? And what acquirers are willing to do. You're starting to see, you're, you're seeing more and more sort of billion plus or around a billion dollars sort of exits. Um, and you're seeing, especially with the steps, you're seeing, you're seeing acquirers pay more, but they're paying more for companies that are more sure thing. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll see. My, I tend to think that history uh, may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And the TikToks in the world and the metaverse are only just beginning to do stuff with product. And I just, I wonder if there's going to be a similar kind of rush. You, you, it's too early right now, but you go out two, three years and you'll see whether the big acquirers are spending on growth in new channel as opposed to what you're saying, which is business fundamentals. Uh, I, I just tend to think it'll, the, the pendulum will swing back. I think everything's cyclical, right? I think everything's cyclical. And I think, um, I think as, look, I think you said it, like TikTok and the metaverse, I mean, that is definitely the next frontier on sort of where consumer brands can interact with consumers. And look, I, I do think there's going to be some really disruptive brands out there. And I do think there's going to be some brands that utilize, and, and by the way, brands are already using TikTok to like great, great success and to like rush out and, and launch and get a lot of sort of sales and get a lot of fan bases. I do think there's going to be, you know, some really um, uh, inventive and disruptive companies, consumer companies that leverage that metaverse, that leverage the TikTok, that leverage all the web three to sort of really do some, like to scale up and get really great sales. And you're right. I, I do think that there will be some sort of um, similar to what we were doing when we were talking about digital sales, there'll be some sort of rush to buy some of these brands um, and buy into that knowledge base. But, you know, right now, you know, it, if you're sort of a, you know, if you're an Amazon business, if you're a regular sort of, if you're doing direct to consumer sales, I do see that people are looking more for, hey, is this company profitable? Is it making a good profit? Does it have a good margin? You know, are the sales sort of recurring sales? Is the consumer base loyal to the product or the personality, right? Of the, of the front person or the founder, um, you know, looking at sort of, hey, I want to buy a brand where the consumer loves the product because, I don't know if the personality is going to be with us forever. Um, you know, and, and hey, look, is there, and, and I'm seeing people look, is there a continued ability to scale, right? Is, have they sort of mapped out that supply chain? And do they have an ability to sort of keep fulfilling and build into their plan? It must be fascinating, Ryan, just as a career kind of milestone in a way to have been part of the vitamin water sale and then been, been part of the body armor sale, you know, that many years later and, and the sort of different criteria on the part of an acquiring company and, and the company being acquired. Did you see that in the body armor deal? Like the sort of the difference in, in sort of what each was looking for and bringing to the table? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when, when, when Coke bought vitamin water, they were buying into this tremendous growth. They brought it, they bought into a uh, independent distributor network. Like, you know, we, I think we signed up like, you know, 110 distributors and had to terminate 110 distributors when, when they sold to Coke and, you know, it was hundred percent sale. And, and there was, you know, an integration that took a, took a period of time. Uh, when Coke came to body armor, you know, they didn't buy hundred percent outright. They came and invested. They invested and they bought a small stake uh, and we moved products from, you know, the, our existing distributor network to the, to, to the bottling system, the Coke bottling system, while we were still, you know, while Coke was still a minority owner. Um, and, you know, that independent, we navigated, we signed up 
86 independent bottlers. We navigated that. We built relationships with those bottlers independent of Coke. You know, I think it was Monster, Body Armor, and Coke products on the trucks. And, you know, you saw, you know, you saw the company build infrastructure. They, they, when Coke came in, you know, the, 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 the human capital, you know, I think it might have tripled, right? And they started building infrastructure. They started building infrastructure for integration. They started building, hey, look, here's a marketing team for each vertical, right? Let's hire, let's bring people in who know how to sort of, who know how to communicate in big corporations and how to navigate sort of like that communication, that bureaucracy. Um, it was, it was a three-year process, right? Of, of sort of building, integrating, and then eventually exiting last summer to Coke. Um, it, you know, and, and look, it was a bigger sale price, right? Um, and, and I would, you know, I can't speak for Coke, but I would think that they would think that it was worth it because, um, you know, you, you bought an asset that their distribution system's already familiar with. You bought an asset that you've already got sort of the human capital infrastructure that, you know, has, has been built in and introduced to, uh, you know, the corporate culture, right. And is, is ready to integrate with you and communicate with your corporate culture. Um, you know, it, it was, Yes, it, it's it's an interesting sort of uh, milestone in my career, but it's also it's also sort of a microcosm of sort of where things are going and how bigger companies are thinking about acquisitions and and sort of integration and, and where that goes. So, Ryan, to, to close, as you as you think about, uh, you know, I'm going to put on put on your your um, your prognostication hat, maybe. When you look out at the product categories and trends that are out there that you know might represent opportunities for a digitally native brand, like what stands out to you as sort of if if you know if you've got capabilities in this area and you're looking to <laughs> to make a make a score, uh, I'd look at these places. What would what would be your pick? Yeah. Um so that's a great question. Um I think that. You know, the first place I'd look is like at informed or in um, personalized wellness, right? Um, anything that is uh, is is sort of putting a product, giving a product to an individual based on data that that individual can give them, right? I, I think generally consumer goods is moving towards personalized nutrition, personalized wellness. Um, the science isn't there yet, right? But I do think like someday you're going to do your, your test, you know, whether it's at a doctor or whether it's at home, you're going to send it to a company. They're going to say, well, this is like the best mix of vitamins for you. This is, you digest these types of, you know, uh, proteins and enzymes the best. So you, here's a diet for you. Take that. Um, it's probably, it's a ways away, right? The science isn't there, but you are starting to see companies use like 23andMe and like just general sort of a geographic um, locations and, you know, consumer sort of um, uh, feedback to personalize, like personalize some products. In, you're seeing it a lot in the skincare and the, and the beauty spaces. Um, you know, those, there's been some significant investments into companies that have a little bit of that, but I think anything that can offer a mix or a product based on some sort of individualized intelligence, I think is a huge category. I think anybody that wants to get into it and can have a, a good idea on it should go for that. Cause I do think it's gonna be a trend that gets hotter and hotter and hotter and bigger for you know the next 
20, 50 years, maybe. So you're saying that maybe someday we could, I don't know, walk into like a Walgreens and they could prick our finger and get one drop of blood and out of that, tell us uh, Theranos. Sorry, I've been watching the dropout. <laughs> I was going to say, pick up one drop. but <laughs> It's like uh, Gattaca. My wife and I just rewatched Gattaca for the first time in a while. Yep, yep. Well, look, you're seeing, look, you're seeing, you know, these health centers that are more holistic health centers and they're focusing not just on treating disease, but like making sure you're optimized your, and your wellness is better. So I do think, look, you're getting, there's a lot more opportunity to collect data about your body, your physiology. And I do think the natural extension of it is taking that information, you know, outside the office, outside the doctor's office and saying, here's a nutrition plan. Here's what you should eat. Here's, you know, you'll digest this better. This will help you sleep better. This bloats you less. And I do find, think that's going to only get sort of more and more, um, useful as the, as the science improves, um, you know, kind of along those lines, but, you know, from a sort of health and a, you know, a health line is, is just reproductive wellness and reproductive health. Um, I think, you know, um, you know, baby food, baby has always been a huge category. And then you've got sort of a pre, you know, natal vitamins, which is, which has been a category and it's been a trend for a while, but now I, I'm seeing a lot more interest and a lot more focus on sort of like, Hey, how do you put yourself in the best position to conceive? Right. And, you know, wellness centered around that and health centered around that and a real focus on sort of preconceptive health and, and sort of optimization and wellness. Um, I think there's just, just talking and, and seeing what's out there. I think there's a lot of interest there. Um, and then, you know, um, just mental, mental health, mental wellness. I mean, look, the, the pandemic, I mean, everything <laughs> all yeah. locked inside going crazy. Uh, I think, you know, um, there's just a much more, there's a bigger focus on, you know, um, self mental care, right? Like we've been focused on our physical, you know, get to the gym five days a week, you know, eat right. And it's been a big focus on our bodies. But, you know, we have sort of put a focus as a society on, on our minds and our sort of emotions. And I think, you know, supplements, food, any sort of thing, consumer goods that helps optimize your mental wellness, helps uh, optimize your cognition is a great, great category. And, and then last, I guess, um, is uh, oral care, right? Uh, you know, there's been, you know, gut health has been a trend for a while. Um, but you know, your sort of the homeostasis in your mouth and your oral sort of cave and your oral sort of health is really, really closely tied to that and to your overall health. Um, you know, you see, you know, the, the oral care products out there are sort of like mostly just kind of been what they have been for a while. Um, you know, you saw Hello got purchased by Colgate, you know, a year or so ago. And I do think there's those products are ripe for disruption. Um, I think they're they're very sort of uh, complementary to a digital native or a DTC uh, type of model. And I do think it's sort of the next part, physical part of our body that we're going to look at in terms of how can I dynamically change my sort of overall health and wellness. That is a list, Ryan. Thank that. That's tremendous. You know, I'm, so I'm saying to my listeners out there, uh, you innovators, you just heard it, <laughs> get to work. Because uh, we are seeing, you know, a number of people. I've I have 
you know, friends in the business that have worked for the large conglomerates and now are looking for uh, a D2C path where they have some upside, where they have real skin in the game and they're bringing their operational experience uh, to, to these fresh ideas. And it's a, it's a risk for them. And so uh, hopefully this list of possibilities might spark some thinking and some new innovation. And look, if you are thinking about starting any of those companies, you should definitely reach out to me. You can find me at uh, uh, www.glaw.us um, or my email, which is ryan, R-Y-A-N, at glaw.us. But I would love to chat with you about any of those if, if you're starting any of those companies up. I, 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 can't, uh, I can't help but support the plug because uh, the, just the knowledge you brought to this podcast, Ryan, it's, we really appreciate it. It's a fascinating time with a lot of headwinds, but you're just saying the right ideas executed in the right way will always have value. So that's, that's super exciting. Thank you so much for, for joining Rob and me. I appreciate it. Yeah, Rob, Peter, thanks so much for having me. This was great. I really enjoyed this. Thanks again to Ryan for the deep knowledge and the hot tips. There's more of all of that at our website, digitalshelfinstitute.org. Head on over. And thanks for being part of our community.